Chapter 26, verse 1. Paul's speech here is the longest and most detailed speech of Acts chapter 22 through 26. Of all the speeches that he gives in all these hearings and all these trials since he first got arrested in Jerusalem, this is the most detailed and the longest speech. And his audience is Agrippa and not Festus. Every indication here seems to be that he's just literally completely ignored everybody, turned right to Agrippa and Bernice, and is going to just launch into a speech with the gospel message and everything. This is an opportunity to reach another politically powerful person who can have great political influence of other people. It is also clear here that this speech is more of a gospel presentation and more of an apologetic than it is a defense. At this point, he doesn't care anymore. It's very clear the charges are false. The accusers are gone. He's a Roman citizen, so they can't try him as Jews anymore. He's before Rome. Two people pretty much know that he's innocent, and he's appealed to Caesar, so nothing that happens here is going to prevent him from going to Caesar. So there's no reason to give a defense anymore. There's no reason to plead his case anymore. It is just gospel presentation time. And that's how he views it, and that's where he's going to go. Nothing is said of the temple. Nothing is said of the Gentiles, as in like bringing them in. Nothing is said of violating the Mosaic law. It's just the gospel. Chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul held out his hand and began his defense. Regarding all the things that I have been accused of by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I am about to make my defense before you today because you are especially familiar with all the customs and all the controversial issues of the Jews. Therefore, I ask that you listen to me patiently. Now all the Jews know the way that I lived with from my youth, spending my life from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They know because they have known me from the time past. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial, because of my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors. With the Jews the first time, back in chapter 22, he went through a long history of him being a Pharisee, being a Jew, being trained, and that kind of stuff. Because he was trying to remind them that he is a Jew, and that he, they are bringing charges against him, accusing him not being a Jew, or not following Jewish law, and he's saying, I get it better than anybody. I enforced it better than anybody did. With Agrippa, Agrippa doesn't care about all that. He doesn't care about like, oh, you're not a true Jew, Paul. He doesn't care about any of that. So Paul doesn't need to prove his Jewishness to him. But what he does say is that I was a Pharisee of the strictest law. And Agrippa would immediately know what that means. He immediately know that this is a Jew who knows the Bible well, knows the customs and the culture well. And Agrippa himself knows it well. He is talking to somebody Agrippa realizes he's listening to a man that gets Judaism well. And so then once Paul states that, now you know that one word, I'm a Pharisee, to a man like Agrippa, he knows exactly what that means, everything about it. And now that means Paul can just simply get into what is this hope that he keeps talking about? I now stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors a promise that the twelve tribes hope to attain and are earnestly serve God might night and day concerning this hope that the Jews are accusing me, your majesty. Now remember, Herod would know 
all of the Jewish law, the Jewish stories. He would know the prophecies, everything. Why do you people think it is unbelievable that God raises the dead? Of course, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene, and that this and and that is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons by the authority I received from their chief priest, from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them. And then when they were sentenced to death, I punished them all. I punished them often, all the synagogues. And I tried to force them to blaspheme because I was so furiously enraged at them. I went to persecute them even in foreign cities. Now this word furiously enraged carries the idea of like fanaticism, blind emotional fanaticism. While doing this very thing, I was going to Damascus with the authority to complete and complete power from the chief priests. About noon, along the road, your majesty, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining everywhere around me and those traveling with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You are hurting yourself by kicking against the goats. So I said, You are, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this reason to designate you in advance, as a servant and a witness to the things that you have seen, and to the things in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your own people, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you and to open their eyes so that they turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may be receive forgiveness of sins and to share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now this is, as many times as Paul has given this story, as many times he says God gave a mission to go to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, this is the most specific detailed phrasing of what God had said to him and what it meant to go to the Gentiles. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared to those in Damascus first and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to all the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. Notice, not only does he say, I was completely obedient to God. I was completely obedient to God in this mission and vision that was given to me. But he also kind of repeats Acts 1.8 again. I went to Jerusalem, and I went to Judea, and then I went beyond that, and now I'm going to the Gentiles. He doesn't say it, but it's implied to the first parts of the earth. And that's where he's about ready to be headed, literally, right now. Everything that I preached, everything that I did, was in conformity, consistent with repentance of sins. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple courts, and they were trying to kill me. I have experienced help from God to this day, and so I stand testifying to both small and great, saying nothing except what the prophets of Moses said, who was going to happen, that the Christ who to suffer and to be the first to rise from the dead, to proclaim light, proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's making it clear that everything he preached is completely consistent in agreement with the First Testament. 
The only thing that one could argue is not consistent with the First Testament is that the Christ is Jesus. But all the hope of the Messiah, what the Messiah would be like, the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah, Paul can clearly point to the scriptures and say that's all there. That's all there. But remember, they're not completely, entirely upset with the fact that Paul is proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. They're upset with this idea of resurrection. And they're upset with this idea of going to the Gentiles. Yet Paul can clearly point to scriptures where that's there as well, over and over and over again, of going to the Gentiles. The real issue here is not whether Paul was a threat to Judaism, as the Jewish leaders acclaim. Rather, the main issue of contention was the essence of the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus, which Paul called the hope of Israel. That's the real issue that Paul's stating. Look, all this, everything that's been happening for the last couple of years, from chapter 22, Acts, when I got arrested in Jerusalem, all the way through here, really has nothing to do with whether I'm a threat to Judaism has everything to do with the fact that they believe that Jesus being raised from the dead is a threat to their power. That's the real contention. That's the real issue. Tanhill says this, Paul is arguing that he has been consistent to his loyalty to the Jewish hope, whereas verses 7 through 8 imply that his opposition are, opponents are strangely inconsistent. What the people earnestly desire, the focus of their hope, is rejected when it arrives. In the end, when Paul is all done, he concludes first by declaring that he had been faithful to his calling to go to the Gentiles and that this was the real reason the Jews hated him and attacked him. Yet Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was consistent with the message that Moses and the prophets gave. Christ died and rose again in order to bring salvation to both Jews and Gentiles so they all might be brought into the light. Paul had successfully shown that this message, the second thing, is that he successfully shown that this message of resurrection of Jesus and of Yahweh's salvation for the Gentiles was rooted in the First Testament, making him the rational Jew, unlike them. Consistent with the scriptures, it was the Jewish leadership that was irrational, inconsistent, and their anger and their charges against him. Agrippa, like I said, would know everything that the First Testament was talking about. He would know the claims, he would know the prophecies, he would know the hopes, and by this time he would know the life of Jesus. He would know what had happened, what has happened, he would know the rise of the, the way and how it's spreading and all that kind of stuff. He gets everything that Paul is saying. And all Paul is doing is connecting a few dots for him and emphasizing that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 24. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed loudly, You have lost your mind, Paul. Your great learning has driven you insane. Festus is not accusing Paul of being insane. He's accusing Paul of being so ridiculously intelligent and that the concepts that he's explaining are so ridiculously complex that it sounds like he's insane. That it, what, what he's saying doesn't seem to make sense. And, and the points that he's connecting make no sense. Now remember, Festus has no understanding of Judaism. He has no understanding of the, the, old, the First Testament or the prophecies. And he has no understanding of resurrection. Romans don't. 
Gentiles don't. Greeks don't. And so for him, all he hears is like, the hope of Israel, resurrection, like, why would you want to come back to this place? Like, this is a crappy existence, like, right? All this kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, but he gets that Paul's intelligent. He gets that Paul's intelligent. But what he's saying is basically, Paul, you've become too intelligent for your own good. You're missing the common sense, obvious things of life. Some of us may know people like that. Okay, you're just like, you're just so intelligent. And you're so focused on these higher philosophical ideas and connecting that you begin to connect in a way that you're like, wow, I'm so impressive that I came up with this philosophical connection that you're like, you completely missed the common sense of just being alive as a human, right? Like that's a great philosophical concept that you came up with and points that you connected, but that doesn't jive with really just truly common sense of living. And that's what he basically is seeing Paul here, not as being insane, loony, but just you've gone beyond common sense, Paul. But Paul replied, I have not lost my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king, he comes back like, you don't get this. But the king, the king knows about these things, and I am speaking freely to him because I cannot believe that any of these things has escaped his notice. For this was not done in a corner. Very politely, he says, I'm not talking to you, Festus. Like, I don't trust you. I don't respect you. I don't like the way you're handling all this. You're a novice. No offense. But I'm speaking to him. And I know he knows what I'm talking about. Because everything that has happened in the last several decades with Jesus and the way has not happened in some corner. Like, this has been out in the open. This has been politically a hot potato economically a hot potato, socially a hot potato, social status, everything. And then he looks straight at Agrippa and says, do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? But before he gives him a chance to answer, he says, I know you believe. If Agrippa answered, yes, I do believe in the prophets, then Paul would, have to, would respond by saying, then you must believe in Jesus. He's the only one who fulfills all this. And it hasn't happened in a corner and is blatantly obvious. And you have no political advantage to ignore Jesus like everybody else does. All these Jews at least. Like whether you accept Christ or whether you don't has no political advantage or disadvantage to you. For the Jews, it has a serious political disadvantage to them. They're going to lose a lot of power. But if he said no, then he would no longer be seen as a good Jew by the other Jews. And then they would lose respect for him. And then he would lose favor with them. And then they might begin to rebel. And they might not overlook some things that he's done. And then he would have to deal with that. Paul kind of puts him in the spot. That moment he's like, oh, political catch-22. But before he can answer, Paul says, I know you do. And that way Paul can say, that's the right answer. <laughs> and deep down inside, you've got to believe in this stuff in some kind of a way. But I'm also not going to politically crucify you right here and now because that's not my point. My point is for you to be saved, to not be crucified, politically speaking or socially speaking. Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian? So Agrippa, in a tone of sophisticated avoidance, like this, I'm really uncomfortable right now. Um, I don't want to talk about my religious beliefs 
um, what I think emotionally or any kind of thing publicly in front of everybody because anything that I say is political suicide. And I, so he comes up with a very sophisticated avoidance way of kind of saying, I'm embarrassed, but I'm too politically pomp and respectful to actually be embarrassed. And so I'm also very politically astute, so I can very sarcastically, ha, 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 are you trying to convert me, Paul? And kind of write it off like this is Paul's doing, not my doing. In a short time, he didn't mean like, hey, Paul, it's only been about 10 minutes that you've been talking. You already want to try to convert me? Like, I'm not going to convert after a 10-minute speech. What he meant means with so few words, okay, with so few words. Meaning, he's not saying like, oh, you can't do that. I need more time because that could be misread politically too. Like, oh, he's going to go home and think about this, right? What he means is you can't convince people with so few words in such a short argument. I don't have enough information. And that is more politically astute, that answer. Paul replied, I pray to God that whether in a short or a long time with many or few words, not only you, but also all those who are listening to me today could become such as I am, except for all these chains. At least he hasn't lost his sense of humor. He basically says, it doesn't matter. My greatest prayer, and the only reason I have said and done all this, is that everybody here listening, including you, would just become a Christian. That, that's, what I, that's what I do. I'm not trying to get out of this court case. I'm not trying to look more politically powerful. I'm not trying to look good on social media or in the media. I'm not trying to win the favor of the left or the right. I'm not trying to ride the middle and get everybody to like me. I just simply want you to be saved and everybody else who's listening. That's what drives me. This is so important. You and I, and Paul probably too. I mean, right? He's going back to a jail cell all by himself. There are multiple times that God has come to him and encouraged him and told him not to be afraid and he'll take care of him. And God doesn't say that unless you're actually feeling it. Even the greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah, had their moments of like, Moses like, I'm done, God. I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't put up with these people anymore. And Elijah's like, I'm done. I quit. And he actually did quit, literally. Jeremiah's like, I do quit and I don't want to speak anymore. I'm depressed and crawled in a ball of depression. But then later said, I can't. The gospel, the message of God is too powerful for me to stop. So, like, even these people that we see as great, bold, and confident speakers had serious moments of depression, quitting, giving up, all that kind of stuff. But, but when it really comes down to it, that doesn't cripple Paul and make him quit and throw in the towel. We're all going to feel that. A couple of years ago, that was my moment. I was ready to just quit teaching. Like, I was done. It was just multiple bad years in a row. We all have that moment. But the question is, are you going to throw the talent? Or are you going to trust in what God has given you? And because the Bible makes it very clear, perseverance is the mark of the true believer. It doesn't say happy, mountaintop, sunset, arms out, is the mark of the true believer. It says perseverance is the mark of the true believer. And the only reason there would be perseverance is if you're going through hell emotional, socially, politically, whatever it is. Or all of them, if you're really lucky. But what Paul is saying is in the end, this is what's driving me. This is why I'm here. 
Everything that you've placed your trust in, fame, power, image, whatever it is, all that drives me, what gets me out of the bed, what gets me through the depression, what gets me out of the cell, is you becoming Christians. You becoming Christians. That will seriously make you reallocate your energy in your life. Too often, we want people to like us. We want to maintain our position of comfort. We also want to have a little bit of power so we can say yes and no to the things that we want. And then when people come at us, it begins to threaten those things, and then we try to play all these things at the same time. Because we really don't really consider everything a loss compared to the gospel. And how God brings all of us there, some of you who already has. But how he brings us there is different for all of us. Trials, rock bottoms, they're all different for everybody. Some people have to go way deeper than other people. And so, but the question is, are you getting to this? Are you pursuing this? Are you trying to get to this moment where really in the end, all that matters is as people hear the gospel? Verse 30. So the king got up, and with him the governor, and the Bernice, and those sitting with them. And as they were leaving, they said one, they, as they were leaving, they said to one another, This man is not doing anything deserving death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus that this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. In the end, one of the most politically powerful person in the Roman world who understood Roman and Judaism the best just said Paul's not guilty of anything. And actually has the guts to face the Jews and say, I'm going to release him. After one speech, I'm going to release him. But because Paul appealed to Caesar, the chips have been cast, and he's off. Now, one sense you might be like, Paul, if you would have just kept your mouth shut, life would have been hunky-dory and everything would have been great. And maybe that's kind of true. Maybe he wasn't really fully trusting in God when he appealed to Caesar in that moment. It's hard to really know or say. No human perfectly trusts in God all the time. But in the end, what really matters is that God told him he was going to Rome and he's still going to Rome. And when in the end, what really matters is Paul's getting a brand new audience for the gospel. And that's all he really cares about. That's all he really cares about. And so many of us in human nature be like, oh my gosh, I'm still in the court systems. And now I'm going to move moved away from my family. But all Paul thinks is, Rome, here I come. The gospel is coming. That's all he understands and that's all he cares about. Now, once again, I'm not saying he's emotionally happy-go-lucky, but there's a deep-rooted confidence that God is in control and taking care of everything. And he's going exactly where God wants him to be. It is only when you truly accept that God is completely in power and in control of all things that one can say, where I am is where I'm supposed to be. That even where we are politically and everything as a nation is exactly where God wants us to be. Whether he's setting us up for some great revival or setting us up for a judgment that we deserved, I don't know I'm not a prophet. Or a third thing that I'm not even thinking about now. 
But the reality is we are where we are because God has allowed it. And he's going to use it for his good. Longnecker says this, Inherent in Luke's account are at least three apologetic themes. Paul's relations with the Roman providential government in Judea did not end in dissonance, but with an acknowledgement of his innocence. Two, even though the Jewish high priests and the Sanhedrin opposed Paul, the Jewish king, who in Rome's eyes outranked and agreed with a verdict of innocence. And three, Paul's innocence was demonstrated not only before Roman and the Jewish rulers, but also publicly before the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. The point here that Longnecker is making is not Luke's main point here is boom, 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 Paul's innocent, everybody agrees. The point is, is that the gospel is not guilty of violating anything of the Roman Empire. This is not an anti-Roman thing. This is not an anti-Gentile thing. This is not a religion that is about rebellion and violence and overthrowing Rome in the way that it is. Rome, on three different ways, has declared Paul guilty and not violating anything. Therefore, Rome can embrace the gospel and still be true to Rome. The only thing that the gospel would threaten in the Roman Empire is the social status system of who is ranked where and when and how and why. But as far as government, murder, law, treason, violence, replacing Rome with its own church power, the gospel is not guilty of any of that. It's not guilty of threatening the government in any kind of a way unless the government doesn't like the social status being overthrown, which they don't, but that's not a law thing. That's a comfort politics kind of a thing. Didn't say it was not pro, didn't say it was, um, doesn't mean it's not a threat to politics. It's just not a threat to Rome and civil order, the law. Legally, they still could quit Paul. They could still, I mean, like, right? They could go to Paul and say, look, we've acquitted you. We don't find any charges. Nothing has been sent to Caesar. Technically, nothing is, like, written down or cemented in the railroad tracks. You don't have to go. But this was not a question of the law, but of social relations between the emperor and the subordinates. No one with desires of promotion would short-circuit an appeal to Caesar. It would be better not to dismiss the appeal, even as flimsy as the evidence was, than to make the mistake of dismissal and anger both the Jews and the emperor. So this really has nothing to do like all the law says. It has more to do with the fact if anything goes sideways in any kind of way with these Jews, and we dismiss Paul, and Caesar finds out later that Paul appealed to him and that all this could have been avoided if he'd just gone to him, that's where we're screwed politically. This is a political sending him to Rome, not necessarily a law demands it to happen. Paul is going to Rome. 